I got in right at the cusp of、uh, you know when 415 was being annexed by Columbia Records. So I had the benefit of you know being a corporate rocker without selling my soul soul to the devil. Anyway, so Courtney was living at that house, and she came down, and she was wearing nothing but a black negligee, and she said, "Hey, you hungry?" And I was like, "Yeah, what do you got?" But we could have played full sets, but I wanted to keep it that way, and, and you know, so that everybody around the country would at least get one sample of what I had tortured the San Francisco audiences with. And、uh, I mean, one thing Jerry said one time was was.、Um, I remember him saying this: "It's like the key to having a happy life is to just imagine the most funnest life that you can imagine, and then live it." And that's a great philosophy, right? And now for part two of this two-part interview with the one and only Joe Papo Pie. It never occurred to me to ask this, you know, how、uh, of all songs in the world. And all bands in the world, the one that you performed entire sets of, you know, how was it that Truckin' came to be that that song? You know, was that just a, how much of that was just chance versus? Oh、uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's a little story behind that. So I was a music major, and when you know I got in, you know, and I discovered punk rock and getting into punk rock. It's like you know seventy eight, seventy nine around that time, and I think it was like in nineteen seventy nine. I was.、Um, You know, we're sitting there. I was talking with some of my music major buddies, and, and 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 some of these guys really, really didn't like Deadheads. Some of these guys really had a had an aversion towards Deadheads. I mean, I was neutral. I mean, I, I you know I wasn't a Deadhead, and you know I knew the Grateful Dead's music because my older brothers were into the Dead. And in fact, the very first rock concert I went to in 1974, I was like 15 years old. It was was a Grateful Dead show, and and they rolled out this. Banner over the the balcony, and it said "Impeach Nixon," and everybody cheered. <sighs> This is right around the time of Watergate and everything. So, so I kind of caught the tail end of that '60s stuff. So, I, I was kind of slightly a participant in it as a very young teenager. But um, but yeah, trucking. So so you know, one of these guys you know was talking smack about deadheads, and he's like, "Yeah, it's fucking deadheads are so obnoxious," and blah blah blah. And so, and then I said, "Well, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if if somebody you know took like some Grateful Dead song, like trucking, and you know, as if it was written by like the Ramones and the Talking Heads and Devo, and and you know, if the Ramones and the Talking Heads and Devo got together and decided to write trucking instead of the Grateful Dead." What would it sound like? And and I I just I brought that up and everybody, roar you know laughed hysterically and and I thought you know maybe I should explore that I should so I so I created the the that arrangement of trucking and that's how it came to be, and yeah I mean you you just think you know I just did that on a lark you know I didn't think it would be you know become like. Yeah. My thing, yeah. You you didn't create a, a spreadsheet of all possible songs and then、uh, whittle it away through analytical methods to figure out here's the one song. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, there was nothing too cerebral about it. It just just kind of happened, and、uh, and and so you know, so so did Jerry think I was making fun of him? No, no. Actually, you have to understand, Jerry was a man with a great sense of humor, and he loved to, that 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 somebody was. You know, because he liked punk rock, and you know, he liked the energy of it, 
And I think he kind of saw it maybe like, you know, the way Jagger really loved the version, Devo's version of I Can't Get No Satisfaction. He thought that was hysterical. And and he was on board with it. And he even said, like, you know, yeah, Devo, they did the best version of Satisfaction I ever heard. So, I, and I think Jerry was kind of the same way with this thing. It was like, wow, it was like, you know, this is, this is like, you know, you know, I mean, Jerry, he drops acid, you know, <laughs> he's got an open mind. He's got a great sense of humor and, uh, you know, and, and uh, he, he, he loved it. He thought, you know, I mean, it, it, he, he, so like a lot of these people, they, they, they're good sports, you know, they, they don't take themselves too seriously. Like, like Led Zeppelin, you know, like there was this guy named Little Roger who put the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven to Gilligan's Island, you know, the theme of Gilligan's Island. And, and, you know, and he put it out just as an indie single or something. And, and Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, got all offended by it. And, they, you know, they had him pull it, you know, so he couldn't do it. And, uh, you know, but, but no, not, not Jerry and the Grateful Dead. They, they, they thought it was awesome. And, uh, you know, they got a good laugh out of it. Uh, let me see. So, so, um, so it's late. So that, that I, think, I think maybe, maybe at some point you were leading up to, um, and, and we didn't quite get there with leading up to, to Steve Tupper and some, yeah, right. Steve Tupper. So I'm about to encounter Steve Tupper for the first time. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm back in town I'm crashing at Bill's place until I find my own place. And, and, and by the way, I just want to say, uh, give, give gratitude where gratitude is most, mostly due. And, and Bill and Roddy, those guys saved my ass on a number of occasions. Um, they, they, whenever, you know, I was in between places or, you know, I lost my place or something or one of my girlfriends would kick me out. They'd always let me crash on their couch. You know, they, they saved me many times. So I want to say thank you. I never <laughs> said, said it before if they're listening and, uh, I have much gratitude. And, and so, you know, I got my own place and, and I, you know, was shopping my tape and, and, you know, I sent it out to some places and, uh, I, I sent it to Tupper and I, you know, walked by the the office that they had there on Valencia Street, Subterranean Records. And I walked mm-hmm. in and I said, Steve, and, you know, and Steve was like, hey, hey, I got your tape, man. I, I want to talk to you about it. You know, when you get a chance, you know, because I was busy, you know, so I said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll come back later and we'll talk about it. So, so I came back and, and we talked about it and I really liked the vibe I got from him. You know, it's like this, you know, this guy said, you know, I want to give you a total artistic control and, you know, whatever you want to do and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I thought, you know, this, you know, I could make a home here for a little while. And so, you know, so he goes, you know, let's talk deal. And so I said, okay, great. Let's, you know, let's, let's do something. And, and Joe's second record materialized out of that. And I did that at Mallon's place, Tom Mallon, who, yeah. by the way, was a, I just want to say it's like one of my, my favorite engineer to work with. Tom is a great engineer, a uh, great person. And I would say a great friend too. And, you know, he, he died about I don't know, eight years ten, ago. 10 years ago. Yeah. I never, I never got to ne- never talk to him, but uh, I was just thinking it's kind of an interesting, you know, sequence where, where, where you went from the automat and, and uh, I think that's a 24 track studio to, yeah, to it's, Malin's. It's, it's, Big, big glitzy yeah yeah to, to malin and and subterranean but probably if not better at least a, a good fit for what you were doing oh yeah no 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 question no no argument there you know it's why well, you touched on something kind of interesting you know it, it's like when i when i did that deal with uh you know the 415 columbia it, it was like i had the benefits you know like I, so I'm i'm kind of a hybrid really 
you know, because I, I started out kind of in that corporate scene and, you know, had the benefit of that. And, uh, you know, I, and so when I went, made the shift to indie, it was like I hit the ground running, you know, it was, it was real, it was already sort of plugged in. And, and so I, you know, I could kind of, kind of go off that thrust and, and uh, be, you know, be a little more out there with uh, what I wanted to do, which is, of course, what I love to do is be a little more out there. I like to push the envelope and um, yeah. So, so uh, go, yeah, going from, from the, the big glitzy to the studio, to the, to a, to a more modest studio, which only had 16 tracks. And, but I mean, you know, the amount of tracks really doesn't matter. It's, it's really, you know, the, 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 the board, you know, the electronics and the board and, and, and the quality of the engineer. Uh, I, I, I'd rather have a, you know, a, a, a less than state of the art board or a less than fancy mixing board and and a good engineer than have a, a great mixing board and a shitty engineer but anyway yeah so tom is awesome guy and we met him and i i didn't know him before that and you know steve kind of sent me over there and um you know because steve's paying the bills so he's telling me where to go and and uh, you know and i met tom and we hit it off really well and uh, tom really got the popo pies and that's the thing and i'll say about both david khan and and tom mellon they both really got the Popo Pies, and they did their best as engineers to cultivate, you know, what I was, you know, the vibe I was trying to cultivate in in the projects. So, but anyway, so so Tom and, and yeah, we, we set up there, we did that, and and Bill and 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 you know Puffy were playing in the band, and Bowen, I think even Bowen was playing with, I mean, he played with Faith No More for a yeah, band. yeah, he 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 was definitely he was definitely um, like pretty consistently with them or, or for, for a, a good long stretch in 1984. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, it's, so yeah. How, how could I, how could I, uh, how could I miss on this project? You know, I got, I got this awesome band and, and, and these guys could, you know, they could play anything. They, they were good. They're great players. And, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, and we were, we were, we were touring, you know, we, we, we went on tour and, and, uh, and, uh, and and there, there's some interesting things about uh, about Joe's second record. It, it was interviewed by this guy in Andy Warhol's interview magazine. This guy named Glenn O'Brien. Oh yeah. And, and he says and he says in in the article he goes, uh, yeah. They, so this is the second record. So there was a first record, but I never heard it. And that's the thing that because by the time Joe's second record came out, the uh, the white EP was sold out and it was out of print. So you couldn't get it anymore, and okay. um, so so when people by the time that record came out, the people you know got the record, and it was the second record. So everybody's looking around for the first record, and they can't <laughs> find it. So people would would approach me and say, "So so it's kind of a prank, right? There there was no first record. It's that's just like a joke, right? It doesn't exist, right?" And I was like, "No, no, it's it, it exists. It's you know, it's a real thing." But uh, what that what that told me was because Glenn O'Brien hadn't heard it, and you know a bunch of other people, that that was very validating because what it showed me was that if I just started right out of the gate indie, um, I would have still made just equally as big a splash as if I you know was working with Four One Five Columbia, and and see the the way those two labels work is you know they had a different methodology of how they would promote. Their records like howie's thing howie klein's thing was was that his version was the media blitz method 
which is like you 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 do you know you pay some for some advertising and you totally like great guns you know media blitz you know like pull out all the stops for like three to six months it's like in really intense and then on to the next one but tupper the way he works was more economical and significantly slower so when what steve would do is he wouldn't do any advertising and he would you know send these records to people who who he knew would you know he wouldn't waste he wouldn't just sort of like blunderbuss scattershot the the all the promos out there he was very careful with who he sent promos to people who he knew liked that kind of music and would write about it favorably and and um let word of mouth uh propel the record to you know the goal and um so so it's probably about you know eight times slower steve tupper's <laughs> method of, of promoting a record but both methods methods are good and they both get the ball across the goal line eventually and so um you know both have their advantages and disadvantages too um so i don't necessarily see that one is better than the other it's just different and i noticed that howie did some other things that i thought were really cool howie knew you know he worked in a radio station kusf so he he understood what what people were like who unpacked these packages that came in from the record companies and, and when howie sent out a promo pack to a, to a radio station especially an indie radio station uh he'd always put in two copies of the record because he knew that the person because if it was a hot record that the you know the intern that was unpacking the package would say hey i'm taking this one home and you know and they'd steal the record and then you know you wouldn't have they wouldn't have a record to play and now he wouldn't find out about it later and that would you know that would kind of ruin a lot of the inertia where steve would only send he'd only send one version you know and and usually these these records would come out in uh there'd be like a campaign so he'd there'd be like three or four releases in one package um at a time because it's more cost effective that way and uh, so so joe's second record came out with uh flippers uh gone fishing and uh, what else i think code of honor maybe their their thing and um one other thing i think i'm not sure that would be late 84 then but i, I thought i thought joe's because hmm. I thought I thought it was a little ahead of Gone Fishing. That's this is this has been very hard to find, but I thought Gone Fishing was late '84, and maybe Joe's second record was mid '84. But no, Joe's second record it was recorded in '84, uh, in March of 1984, I believe. And because okay, um, y'all did the tour over that summer. Yeah, well, that March of yeah. Well, here's the thing: before that record came out, I mean. You know, the Faith and War guys were playing in the Popo Pies from late 83 all through 84, up until the beginning of 85. And then they, you know, decided, you know, we're, we're going to be, you know, full-time Faith and War. And we, you know, we're not, not going to have time to, to work with you anymore. So they, they went off and, you know, started their own thing uh, in, in earnest. And, uh, you know, and that's when they came up with We Care A Lot and all that stuff. And, you know, their first one was 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 in India, I think, More Damn Records. That yep. was Care A Lot. And um, so, but anyway, so yeah, so yeah, before the record came out, they were they were playing in the Papa Pies. So, you know, we were we were working, we were doing stuff, and um, 
so anyway, so Joe's second record, and you know, we we did this barnstorming tour through the South, and we met a lot of cool people who I'm still friends with, and uh, it was a lot of fun. How far did you did you? Uh, I know you all played Texas because Bill Bill remembered something about Texas, but I'm not sure how far. Yeah, like, well, we did we did Arizona. There was a couple of dates in Arizona. Yeah, you didn't make uh, it into the Southeast. No, and I'll tell you why, because there's nothing. In the, there's nothing in the Southeast. Well, There's I mean, he, the, the the route that you would have potentially taken if you did do that, it would involve going through Texas and then into Louisiana and then um, probably from, you know, New Orleans up to either somewhere in the Florida panhandle, probably not, or, or Atlanta. Uh, but, you know, these bands, but and then, you know, Atlanta and then D.C., but that's a lot of driving, you know, um, and, you know, Raleigh. <laughs> Where I'm from, or or those places, we're generally not on the itineraries. If I look at itineraries, but you know that's that's a lot of driving, and and it, yeah. you know a big picture point about the whole West Coast thing. You got to go a long way. I've never really, you know, I've certainly never experienced that as a as a touring musician. But you know, just to get from California to you know the next place that you're going to play is it, you're already doing way more driving than you'd have to do on the East Coast to to put together a little tour. Oh yeah. And then, right. <laughs> and in that sense, the Papa Pies, you know, even that first tour was 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 fairly, you know, up, along with Flipper, there really weren't a lot of bands that were making it, that were touring on the East Coast from from uh, any kind of underground. I mean, obviously the Dead Kennedys, but but um, from any sort of underground uh, sort of scene, it, it was not easy to to do that. Yeah, you're, well, you're to, touching on a, you're touching on yeah. a very good point there. The East Coast, yeah, it's, it's it's very compact, and around that time, you know, there weren't that many cities that you could play in. You know, there weren't that many. You know, remember this is the 1980s, which is very different than the 1990s. By the 1990s, people had kind of woken up, and indie was a thing, and it was you know, indie was almost mainstream in the 90s. You know, people, you know, there was a lot of cities, a lot more cities to play, and even in those cities, there was more than in one venue, whereas in some places there'd just be like one venue, one place to play where everybody played. Like, you know, in DC, there was just only one club, the 930 club. But, um, you know, in, in order to understand rock and roll in the 1980s, in order to understand the rise of indie in the 80s, uh, you know, the beginning of indie in the 80s was because um, you, you have to understand, uh, I mean, you, you really have to go all the way back to the end of World War II. And where the story begins, the story of rock and roll does begin at, at the end of World War II. And the reason why, you know, in other words, when you're telling the story of rock and roll, you got rock and roll is reactive. So it reacts to something that was just very much that way. It kind of pushes off. Uh, it, it stands on the shoulders of what has come before and reacts to what has come before. I'll come back to that in a minute. But yeah, there wasn't that many places to play uh, in the 1980s. And um, what bands would do is the only place that, that was hip enough to handle independent bands or bands kind of like that, you know, newer bands, bands who were playing, you know, punk or new wave or post-punk or whatever, whatever you want to call it. You'd play between Washington, D.C. and Boston. And that was it. There was, there was nothing south of that. I never heard anybody playing Atlanta 
I never heard anybody playing Miami or Jacksonville or, uh, you know, uh, Montgomery, Alabama. People went as far as about Baton Rouge, Louisiana, because it's a college town and, you know, people like to party there. And you're talking about from the from a from the West. Yeah, from the West. If, yeah. if you were coming from the West, yeah, you you, you know you do Texas and you do Baton Rouge. Um, we were going to play Baton Rouge, but they canceled at the last minute. And uh, but what we we saturated Texas pretty good, playing some cities twice, as I recall. And then we had a gig fall through in El Paso, so we we did a gig in somebody's garage instead, and we just passed the hat. And that's actually a very difficult a very difficult way to perform because, you know. There's, there's, you know, small amount of people and I, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, it's harder to perform in front of a small group of people than it is a very large group of people. Like the larger the group, the easier it is, I think. But, you know, so when you're, when you're playing for, you know, a very small group, of like a dozen people or something, it's like, you have to relate, you know, you, you, you cannot, you know, kind of look over their heads or something. You know, you've got to, you've got to have kind of intimacy with the people and that's you know that takes a little more uh, but but anyway so that was el paso i know we played in um we played in tucson and we played in uh phoenix and what was really wild about the phoenix gig we played this place called vivian's and what it was was it was a former catholic church okay and the bands played on the altar and they had the little balustrade and everything and and, and and there was you know they pulled they took out all the pews and you know people you know people just slam dance and they got in this wheel and they, you know all the punks would kind of get in this wheel and and, and slam and and it was pretty you know friendly and everything but um but for me you know the irony was not lost on me I'm playing a Catholic church <laughs> and I'm singing the Catholics are attacking you know almost almost as if it's like you know yeah we won and now we're 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 desecrating their grave here. <laughs> Let me see. You know, and then we played LA. We always played LA a lot. You know, some places there. I forget where we played. Oh, we played this. Uh, we we played a really cool place in the summer of 1984. Occidental College. We played a college gig, and that was really fun. They gave us our own little cottage to stay in. You know, played for all our plane flights, and they they took good care of us. I mean, they, you know, they they were they were really nice, and there was a lot of great food and alcohol there and stuff and they're really nice people and i met some really cool people there um that was the first time i met chuck chuck mosley and chuck was you know he was slightly lit and you know zooming around on a skateboard and uh he was he was playing me this tape uh, of his band haircuts that kill or something mm -hmm. yeah and and one of the one of the songs on it ends with this line because drugs is the happening thing. And I thought it was so funny just to hear trucks, Chuck say that. It was fucking hilarious. I mean, Chuck always broke me up. He was very, very funny man. Um, yeah, may he rest in peace. God bless him. So we did the the yeah, the Joe Second Record thing, the Joe Second Record tour, and I, and the funny thing about it is, when I conceived that record, doing it, I was in this state of mind where I was like, uh, you know, the working title for it in my mind was Joe's last record, because I I wanted to just kind of like really let it 
let it all go and not pull any punches and just say what I really felt about what I experienced about the music business to date and not, you know, and, and, and places that I had gone that I thought the people were, were, you know, not cool and, you know, cities that I thought were fundamentally lame and, uh, you know, and, and I just wanted to pour that, you know, pour all that uh, brutal honesty into one record. And, you know, and I just thought, you know what, after I release this one, I am going to piss off so many people that th that's, that's going to be it. It's going to be over. And, and, and if so, I didn't give a fuck. And so when I put that out, much to my surprise, it was kind of like everybody that heard it that I was talking about thought I was talking about some other aspect of the scene. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's funny how when you don't mention names, everybody reads into it what they want to read into it. And they thought I was talking about somebody else, but maybe I was talking about them. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, I don't know. But, but everybody took it that way. And everybody was like, yeah, you know? And so that record went into multiple pressings and Tupper was so pleased with it. He was so thrilled with it that, that he, he said, yeah, we got to do another record. So, you know, Joe's third record, if you will allow me <laughs> to, uh, and I'll try to be as diplomatic as I can. That record, I, I have some, some issues with that record as, as people may or may not know. But anyway, so where, where I got the crew for that, that, uh, that record, uh, Mikey kind of, you know, he doesn't appear a lot in, in your book, but he was, you know, very, very present all through the Popo thing. And various things kind of knocked him out of the, 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 the picture, apparently. Like, like he got, he had some accident before Joe's second record. He was going to, he was going to play on that, but he, he had some accident. He broke his hand or something. He broke his wrist or something. And, you know, so he couldn't play for a while. And, um, you know, but he was on the first, the YDP tour. He was on that first tour. And he was yeah. on, uh, he was on the Joe's second record tour. You know, his hand had healed up. And Bowen, Bowen wasn't on the road with us. He he had left the band at that point. And uh, Bowen couldn't. He filled in for Bowen because Bowen couldn't because because Bowen got he, he got sick. He got ill. Right. He couldn't he couldn't do the first tour. So um, you know. So and Mike of course did all the third record tour stuff. And and he was the bass player on that record. And um, but anyway. So uh, let me see. How did I how did I get these guys? So. Um, yeah, so so at the end of, I guess it was like right at the beginning of uh, 1985, um, you know, Bill and, and and Puffy and those guys said, you know, we're going to do our thing now. We, we don't have time to, to work with you anymore. So I said, okay, great, but you know, thanks for your help. And and so uh, I I had seen Hello Kitty on Ice, or I was going to see Hello Kitty on Ice, and I don't know if I had seen them yet. I think I had seen them already. I think you would have seen them because I think they they kind of um they yeah they, of, they, they that they were, was right around the time yeah that was right around the time they broke up they broke up right right around that time so I'm not I so I got I'm, I'm a little bit maybe you know off in the time here but I remember what happened you know Greg Turkington was uh, you know as our, our our favorite Neil Hamburger guy um, <laughs> was was uh, was working as an intern at Subterranean Records and that was when I met I met Greg in like I think it was '83. I think it was like 15 years old or something. And, and when, uh, you know, I came by Subterranean to talk to Steve for that first time. And, uh, you know, I thought he was a cool kid. He was, you know, he was very mature for his age. And this was the thing, you know. So I got to know Greg, you know, because he was always down at Subterranean. 
And um, although he was a younger kid, you know, he was like nine years younger than me or something, he was he was very, you know, very precocious and very, very bright for his age, very, very worldly wise. And I could definitely relate to him. And um, he said, oh, yeah, Joe, you got to come see our band. Hello, Kitty on Ice. It's it's really good. You got to come see it. So I said, oh, OK, OK. So I'll put you on the list. OK. So I went down and I caught their act. I didn't expect much. I really didn't. And I and I saw Greg as like a 16 year old kid doing his shtick in front of like 20 something kids, and he was breaking them up. He was making them laugh so hard, and it was so awesome. Hello Kitty and I, you know, and Kirk was there. Kirk was almost like Greg's straight man, because <laughs> <laughs> Kirk was so serious and he was so into his you know guitar, you know, setup and gizmo, and you know he never looked up and he was just playing like the Dickens. And um, so I, 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 Mikey and I went to see when, when uh, you know, Puffy and Bill, you know, were, were kind of giving me notice. We, we went to see, I think, one of the last, maybe we had seen them already. I'm not sure. But I remember Mikey and I went to see Hello Kitty on Ice at one of their shows. And, you know, we, we were checking out Kirk and, and uh, you know, and, and we both looked at each other and said, yeah, this guy, this guy, he'd be good. Let's let's get him. Let's get him in the band and then then he can go back to playing bass and and you know we can move forward from there and and so um but you know and, and as luck would have it i think right around that time there was some dust up over a over a woman you know and uh, kirk's girlfriend at the time was uh you know she she dumped him and started going out with greg and and uh and and of course that created you know so much tension in the band and so the brand broke up and so kirk was bandless right at that time and so that's when mikey and i approached him and said listen you should play in our band and kirk was like yeah right on man so you know so we saddled up together and i started writing some songs and uh he knew this drummer uh that that he liked but uh, i mean i thought he was just you know a basic utilitarian drummer you know johnny g was, you know he was okay he wasn't I mean, you know, he was pretty good. He wasn't, you know, anything fantastic, but maybe that's what we needed at that time. You know, we didn't want anybody too flashy, you know. So um, so anyway, Johnny didn't get it. Johnny didn't really get punk or post-punk. And, you know, the kind of music he enjoyed listening to was like, uh, you know, uh, Van Halen and, and uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and he was, uh, you know, he was sort of a classic rock kind of guy. And but but Kirk liked him and he wanted to work with him. So we said, okay. And um, but but so what so what I did was during that time, I remember, you know, I, I started to hang out with Kirk a lot because I, I I'm I'm kind of of the uh Hector Berlioz school of uh of of songwriting where you know Hector Berlioz used to go hang out with the you know members of the orchestra and you know buy him a beer and a sandwich and you know tell him, hey, what do you like to play? What are your what are your favorite passages? And you know. And, uh, you know, that's how we got to be such a great orchestrator. And anyway, but so I, I, you know, if I can, I like to hang out with the people who I'm going to be writing songs, you know, for to play. And, and what I did was I remember during that time, um, like January, February, I, I was hanging out with Kirk at his place out of the great, great highway, great white highway. And, uh, you know, and we would go out there and we'd get drunk and I'd bring my bass and, and uh, you know, I'd play all these bass lines and stuff. And he would get his guitar and, and we would just start, you know, jamming and, uh, you know, and, and, and I would, I would kind of see, you know, what, what kind of worked. And I, so I would, you know, kind of write the songs around what he could do 
well, you know, what he what he enjoyed doing and um, and and did well. So uh, so it was a good you know it was a good fit. They were you know kind of tailored in a way, and uh, so I gave him a lot of room to to stretch out and be himself. And so you know I wrote this, I slapped the songs together, and I guess we you know rehearsed them, and I think March of '85. And and we were also we were playing some shows then too. So I I would try the songs out in, in live context, you know. Then then uh, we we uh, went into the studio in April, early April of 1985, to record Joe's third record. And you know the name of Joe's third record was from uh, Steve said, "What are we going to call Joe's third record?" And I said, "Well, it's called Joe's third record." So there you go. And uh, <laughs> We didn't have to put a lot of thought into that one, and um, so he, so here's here's where we, we start where I start to run into trouble. Now you know the second record had done so well. Steve gave me this you know big ass budget to to record this record. You know probably the biggest budget, well, probably probably the biggest budget he ever outlaid. But it was you know tens of thousands of dollars, and which is a lot of money for uh, an indie label. It's a lot of money in 1985 dollars, and it's a lot of money for an indie label of you know Steve's size. So it was, you know, he had a, a great deal of faith in what he was doing here. And um, he said, you know, I, I want you to work. Uh, I want to send you to Hyde Street this time. And, uh, you know, not Mallet's because, uh, you know, they got 24 tracks and it's a you know, bigger studio and, you know, we'll get a bigger sound and, you know, all this good stuff. And and uh, and the house engineer who's there. And the, what happens is during the the I think it was I don't even know if I was in the studio when it happened, but the engineer accidentally erased most of the drum tracks on, on the, one of the songs, Sugar Magnolia. And um, I, I, you know, I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, that, that's not even a rookie mistake. That's just like fundamental incompetence. And I was fucking pissed. And I was like, you know, my, here's my blood and sweat and tears pouring into this thing. And this, you know, this goofball, erases you know the, the drum tracks when he's re, when he's rewinding the tape and so oh and it gets worse so while we weren't around he got this like cheap microphone with a flat surface head and he tried to you know with his thumb play you know play you know play the the the, 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 track, the song and then tap on the on the top of this microphone to kind of you know, get a drum sound, you know, and, you know, and, and so when Mike and I showed up the next time to, 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 you know, continue mixing, he said, yeah, well, you know, yeah, I accidentally erased the, the drum tracks, but, you know, Hey, I fixed it. Cause you know, I took this, I took this microphone and, I, you know, tapped on the, the top of the microphone to, you know, kind of do the drum, you know, get, get a drum sound, to, you know, fill in the drums that I erased. And, I, and Mike and I both turned to each other and we gave each other this look like, is this guy out of his fucking mind? You know, I mean, <laughs> like, who the fuck does that? You know what I mean? And it sounded terrible. It sounded horrible. And and so I, I said, so he was rewinding the tape after that. And I heard the tape going backwards. And I said, and I joked to myself, hey, it actually sounds a lot better going backwards than it does forwards. I'm like, I know, we'll put it on the record backwards. <laughs> so that's why that is the 
way it is. Okay. Now there's another record. There's another song that's going backwards. And the reason why that one is going backwards too is because the wrong take of In Frisco got saved. And it's the one where Johnny is playing on two N and four instead of just two and four. And believe me, it makes it sound more like a, like a classic rock song than a punk rock song. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, shit, somebody saved the wrong fucking take on this thing. And, and I wasn't going to put it out like that because, you know, that's, that would, you know, represent the definitive of that song in people's minds. And I didn't want it going out that way. So I said, well, listen, man, I'm going to do this some other, some other way in the future and do it right when the drums are on two and four instead of two and and four. So I said, well, fuck it. I already got one, one song going backwards. I don't have two. And, and I listened to that one going backwards and it did sound better going backwards than forwards as well. So then I, then, you know, when Kirk was there and I was like, Hey, why don't we put the whole record backwards? And he goes, I'll kick your fucking ass. So, you know, and he wasn't being serious, of course, but I mean, you know, but, and I, I was just joking, really. I mean, it was just a joke. I, I thought the rest of it sounded pretty good. You know, the rest of it did sound good going forward. So back to the, the the Hyde Street disaster. So this this record was taking forever and it was going over budget. And Steve, you know, called me and said, Joe, how how is it going? Because I'm running out of money. You know, you got to get it done in X amount of time. So I said, okay, you know, so I, so I did. But it ran over budget so badly that uh, it delayed the release of the record. But anyway, so I had to do, I guess, what was the analog equivalent of a, of a GoFundMe. And actually, me and Mike actually put in the legwork on that. So I got to give some props to Mike King because he you know, really helped out. He, was, he did a, an awesome job of helping me out raise this money. And how I did it was I went through, you know, locally, the Popo fan mail that I got, you know, because back in the old days, you know, back before everybody had computers and email, you would actually write a letter to somebody and put it, you know, put a stamp on it and put it in the mailbox, you know. And um, so I had this stack of, of pop of my fan mail and I went through the, the fan mail and I, you know, located people who were local, who I felt, you know, had bought, you know, some merch through the, through the mail order. And um, I, you know, singled out some people who I thought might be interested in, uh, you know, helping us bail the record out. We need to raise about 2000 bucks. So what I do is I wrote them letters and uh, this is how incredibly slow things move back then. And some of the people I said, you know, give me a call and, you know, we'll talk if you're interested and, and you know, I'll, I'll come over and I will play you the, the, the cop, a copy of the album. And, you know, and you can decide if you, you know, want to give us, you know, a donation or whatever. <clears throat> and that's what I did. And that's how I and Mike King raised the money for, for this to bail out the record but because everything took so long the record was delayed by a good you know six or seven months so you know the ill-fated joe's third record <clears throat> came out in, in early april and uh didn't have as much you know airplay time but before it kind of got lost in the sauce for next year's round of new releases and things you know 
But that was a that was a strange time, I, like for me trying to put that chapter together. And I, I don't I don't know what you thought of it. Like I kind of grouped it together with a couple of other other things. But it seemed like you know that was getting towards the the tail end of whatever era it was when you started. That was winding yeah. down. Right. I don't know how it felt to you. Well, I mean, you talked to me. Oh, myself, well, I, I could. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I got a whole piece on that. But yeah. And uh, yeah, I know what you mean, because right around uh, late, late 1986, see, I had started to, you know, as soon as the Joe's Third Record came out, I started uh, planning the tour. And anytime you plan a tour, you know, you got to do it, you know, four to six months ahead of time, at least, because, you know, you got to lead everything. And um, I had set up this really great tour for the Northeast in uh, late 1986. But I don't know what the hell was going on, but some some big clubs, some of the bigger independent clubs uh, closed down that I had, you know, we were going to play. And because of that, we had to cancel the whole tour because, you know, too many things had dropped out at the last minute and they were the big money you know, rooms that we were going to play. And so it wouldn't have been financially feasible. So I had to cancel the whole fucking thing. And, and I was, I was uh, really kind of bummed. I, I took a year off at that time. And, uh, and then this place called the Music Works opened up in late 1987. And, uh, and they said, oh, you haven't played in a while. Let's, let's, let's do a show. The, the booking guy, Michael, this guy's name was. And uh, it was just kind of a big, independent venue and, and we packed the, packed the place and, and we and we made really good money and i was like wow this is the way it should be you know it's like this booking agent guy is he's he's not like other booking agents i've worked with i mean he's really honest and he's really you know he pays you what you make and everything and it was a great place but uh, it got shut down somebody had it in for that place and uh used some uh, classic local yokel music mafia dirty tricks to get the place shut down and i noticed right around that time this was like uh you know coming into late 1988 that a lot of you know bigger independent venues not just in san francisco but on the east coast as well because again i'm trying to set up tours but these these clubs keep you know opening up for a while and then they they shut down and um I, I noticed that, you know, if, if your place, as long as your club had a capacity of like less than 75 people, you know, you didn't get shut down. But anything bigger than that, it, you know, these places were getting uh, shut down for some reason. And um, this is what I call the beginning of the long punk rock winter and or post-punk winter, like I refer to it as. And there was some weird stuff going on right around that time. Like, for instance, like, uh, I know that Alternative Tentacles was was uh, dealing with this lawsuit from the Frankenchrist, uh, you know, their, their, their warehouse got raided by the FBI or something, and they were embroiled in this uh, obscenities trial or something during that time. And that was kind of uh, eating up all their resources, their financial and, you know, administrative resources to get put anything out or do anything. And the similar kind of thing, uh, Subterranean Records was getting audited by the IRS, and that was tying up all their resources and time and energy. And uh, SST was dealing with some monster lawsuit from uh, some, some, I don't know, if it was a media conglomerate or- Oh, well, that was the Negative Land YouTube. The Negative Land thing, yeah, the Casey case. Which is a little bit, a little bit later. 
But, a little bit, yeah, a little bit later for sure. But but I mean, you know, it's it definitely. But but I mean, it it happened like I'll call the post punk winter between late '88 and late '91. So there was like a three year solid period, and also there was other weird thing going on. And of course, I had a tape, you know, back in during that time, uh, I I had written a bunch of songs and uh, I recorded them with you know, some people and, and Bill Gould had this Revox. Uh, what a Revox is, is it's a, um, you know, it's kind of like a poor man's uh, portable recording studio. And it has, it's, it's very limited, but Bill had this new, you know, gizmo that he, and, and he wanted to try it out. And he said, you know, how'd you like to be my guinea pig? And I'm like, all right, let's do it. So Bill helped us make this demo tape that I made. And, um, I went down to, I guess this was like late 88 or something. I went down to my attorney, uh, Barry, and I said to him, Barry, uh, you know, here's my next offering. You know, I'd like you to shop, shop this tape. I'm working on my next deal. And he said, okay, but, you know, I listened to it. And he said, you know, you really have to understand something, you know, for the next few years, they're not going to be signing anything except spandex hairbands. And you're not a spandex hairband. And so, you know, they're not going to pay any attention to you. And um, so, so he said, why don't you just, you know, if I were you, I'd just go off and do something else with my life for a little while for the next few years. And, uh, and, and sure enough, he, which is what I did. I went out and got a, actually went out and got a steady job, which was, you know, something I hadn't done in a long time. So uh, he was absolutely right. It, it lasted about three more years. And then all of a sudden we have this thing called grunge comes in like in 1992 and all grunge was was just post-punk before it was interrupted by the long spandex hairband winter winter and um you know and, and then everything was off and running and oh the other thing that i wanted to point out was during that time around 1990 ish there was this weird thing that kicked in called pay to play and, and again i'm not participating so i'm just reading about this in one of the weeklies and, uh, you know, talking to people who I know, who, who book clubs, who I run into every once in a while, you know, have coffee with them or something. And, um, you know, and, and what, what they were doing was they were forcing bands to like sell tickets to their shows. And if they didn't sell the tickets, then they couldn't do the show. And how the hell are you going to sell tickets to a show, right? If you're just a band, you don't know, you don't know who's going to show up. You need to call people up or something. So, um, so that that was just a way of derailing a lot of uh, independent bands from performing, it, and it, it just it just seemed like it just seemed like there was this some kind of entity was uh, trying to not completely obliterate independent music, but temporarily derail it for a time. And if you look back at that time, there's not much going on. There really isn't. And I remember the radio at that time, like even college radio was was playing a lot of this sort of Euro disco stuff. And there wasn't any like, you know, kind of band bands. And um, even like commercial radio was like playing all these spandex hair bands, you know, like the moderate rock uh, station was playing, uh, you know, Euro disco stuff exclusively. So yeah, it, it was just anything that sounded half decent was like not happening during that time. It was just a, a very abysmal time. And if there's anybody listening out there that uh, 
you know, listening to this podcast that has any thoughts as to why you think that was happening or any thoughts on it, I'd really like to hear them. So, you know, maybe maybe someone will contact you and say, I know why that was happening. But anyway, I'll leave it up to people to draw their own conclusions. But uh, that was the demarcation between the 80s and the 90s. And if you needed a demarcation, that was it. Right now is a good time to circle back and get into a couple of things. What I said earlier about, uh, you know, if you really want to understand rock and roll of the 80s and 90s, if you really want to understand the rise of independent uh, record companies and, you know, indie, the independent music scene altogether, you, you really have to understand what came before the 80s and what came before that even. And I'm going to try to give you a whirlwind tour with this without taking the long way around. But, you know, you have to go back to the end of World War II. And all these GIs came home and, and, and all these babies were born. And as you know, it's called the baby boom. And, you know, a ton of them were born in 1946. And um, what happens is, you know, rock and roll I, I, again, people, you know, might have their own idea on it. And if they do, it's fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. And, and I respect everybody's opinion. And if you disagree with what I'm about to say, it's okay. We can still be friends. But, you know, I slice rock and roll into four very distinct eras. It lasted for 48 years. And there were four 12-year, very distinct eras with some very distinct demarcations between each one. And, it, you know, we start uh, in 1952 and you have people like Bill Haley and the Comets and, uh, you know, then later you had Chuck Berry and Elvis and Little Richard and then Buddy Holly. And I kind of caught the end of that, or that, that era, because when I was a, a preschooler, uh, my first memories were, you know, singing along to Buddy Holly at Christmas time, 1962, because I had an older brother who was really into Buddy Holly and he played him to death. And so I, I really got acquainted with my older brother's music pre-Beatles. And that era goes from 52 to 64. And then in 64, the second iteration of rock and roll is what they called the British invasion. Now, rock and roll is a it's an American invention, like hot dogs, ice cream, and rubber cement burgers. You know, it's something uniquely American. And so somebody had to say that this was the British invasion because a lot of the bands, I guess, they had slated, you know, we're going to be imported from the UK. It was going to be a lot of English bands. And, it, and sure enough, over that next 12-year period, that most of the bands were. English bands. There were some American bands, you know, but but they were in the minority. Now, in the in the what I call the fifties era, the you know the the first one that went from fifty two to sixty four, that was like a, largely a teenage phenomenon. Okay, it was you know rock and roll was was a quirky teenage uh, ritual, and you know then you were supposed to go to college and get a job and and, and you know grow up. Well. Rock and roll takes on a very different uh, persona in the British invasion era from 64 to 76. And, and what it does is rock and roll becomes more political. Rock and roll becomes more of a social force. And rock and roll is not just for teenagers anymore, 
but it's for kids in their 20s, you know, up until the age of 30. And it's a very robust, vibrant uh, thing. And, and there's a lot of money in it. And the reason why there's a lot of money in it is because there's all those kids that were born after World War II were are, you know, they got money and they're consuming and they're they're buying records and it's feeding the record industry. I mean, to give you an idea, in the early 70s, you had bands uh, putting out one album every six months. You know, whereas like by the 1980s, it was like one LP every two years or something. By the 90s, it was like one LP every three years or something. You know, so so there was a lot of money and they could afford to have dud bands and, uh, you know, still keep cooking right along and make tons and tons of money. Well, what's going on there is uh, a lot of people are starting to go to concerts as well. And the concerts are not just like some hall somewhere that has, you know, a few hundred people in it or 500 people. You know, it's they're starting to play in sports arenas, you know, Madison Square Garden, Philadelphia Spectrum, you know, places where basketball teams and hockey teams do their thing. And, uh, you know, and it's, the, the seating capacity is, is huge. It's, you know, thousands of people, like 10, over 10,000 people. And, and you got bands packing in those kinds of crowds. So they're making real good money, uh, especially all through the 70s. But there's a, there's a, there's a slight problem here. Now think about it, 1976 rolls around and all of a sudden there's a problem. And all through the 60s, and you you wouldn't know this because you didn't live then, but when I was a kid growing up in the 60s, there was a saying, you can't trust anybody over 30. And they made t-shirts and posters and Mad Magazine had a lot of fun with it. And, uh, you know, it was just a very, you know, counterculture, youth, hippie kind of thing. You can't trust anybody over 30. And, you know, that was the, the generation gap and the, you know, the war between the generations and stuff. Well, think about it. What happens in 1976 to all of those people who were born in 1946? <laughs> they turned 30, right? Yeah. They so all of a sudden attendance at concerts starts to starts to drop off immensely. And you know, they're not selling as many records as they used to. And I remember it was back in 1976. I was talking to this guy locally in South Jersey, and he was uh, you know, he had a band which was like a cross between uh he had a prog rock band. Uh, the cross between Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and and yes, or something. And anyway, and I was talking to him. He said, "Yeah, I went down to catch Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's uh, sound check at the Philadelphia Spectrum." And uh, he goes, oh, "They had to send everybody home because what they would do is, I mean, these things got pretty elaborate. What they would do, they had this like this orchestra thing. They were doing that Aaron Copeland kind of orchestra thing, and and they would hire string players locally." who were, you know, ringers, who were sharp players. So they, they would bring them in the afternoon and they'd do a rehearsal with them so they'd get the parts down and then they'd do the show that night. And they'd get paid for the rehearsal and they'd get paid for the show. Well, um, they, they, they had to send everybody home because they didn't sell enough tickets. And uh, I don't know if they canceled the rest of their tour or what the, you know, what the deal was. But uh, this started to happen. So the rock and roll recording industry realizes it has a problem because its consumers are aging out of the uh the consuming demographic 
And so what, what they did was something very smart. They lobbied the FCC to enable more broadcast power to college radio stations. And they would use these college radio stations as test markets because they couldn't afford to have duds anymore. And they would use them to, to vet the, uh, you know, they would test market these guys and see if they were good. And uh, so, so the two stations that they, I don't know if they funded them overtly or covertly, but that they wanted to use as their flagship stations, were KUSF in San Francisco and KXLU in Los Angeles. And I, like I say, I don't know if the donations were overt or covert, but I'm telling you this, I went into you know, KUSF to do a bunch of station IDs for DJs and stuff. This was like early 83, late 82, early 83, something like that. And you know, I used to go there a lot. So you know, so anyhow, I was hawking a show, I would go down there and they liked me down there because you know, I was you know, kind of a fun interview and I would just hawk the show and they'd play some Popeye Pie songs and I'd you know, let people know what was happening. Well, I went down there around that time, late 82, and I saw like state of the art. I mean, they had headphones, you know, they're real nice and you could talk to people on the air and, you know, everything was brand spanking new and, and uh, it, was, it was a top-notch outfit. Well, I'll tell you something, 20 years later, after the implosion of rock and roll, after digital killed uh, rock and roll, uh, I went in there in 2003 to hawk the Popo anthology, and uh, I, I couldn't believe it. They they only had one pair of working headphones, and it was duct taped with this grimy, grimy duct tape, and only one of the ears was working. And and uh, you know the place was it was in decline, it was declining terribly, and it's because the funding had pulled out of it because you know the rock and roll recording industry had imploded. So they didn't need college radio stations anymore. So they weren't funding them anymore. And they were basically on their way out. I don't know whatever happened to K KXLU, but KUSF went out of business, uh, I think in 2010. They sold the frequency band to some classical station down the peninsula or something. But, you know, it, it was that, that is what was, you know, feeding these things. And the point I'm trying to make is, the, the next demarcation I'm going to talk about is is the one that starts in 77 or 76, I should say, late 76, early 77. And that's the what they call the new wave, rise of the new wave. And it was called punk new wave later on, as, as people use that term. And it was it had a very distinct demarcation to it. There was a new set of rituals. Bands were played smaller places. The 45 made a comeback. In the in the fifties, the uh, forty five was what most people bought. I remember my brother; I had an older brother who was drafted, went to Vietnam, nineteen sixty five, and I, while he was there, I was you know like in the first grade or something, and I learned how to work the uh, what they call the Victrola. They didn't have stereos back then. Stereos were an anomaly. I mean, there were people that had stereos, but most people had mono things, and all forty fives and and albums were were in mono. And all the rock and roll stuff, pretty much all of it was on 45s. So, but when the when the British invasion happened between 64 and 76, all of a sudden, you know, singles like faded out. They were considered to be like, you know, cornball 50s stuff. And, you know, the album, the 12-inch album was, you know, a big deal. And, you know, FM radio started and they were broadcasting in stereo. You know, so now you had you know, stereo 
phonic, uh, you know, when you had these albums and, and uh, you know, it's like the songs got longer and longer, you know, like, like a whole side of an album would be long, you know, that whole prog rock thing. But, you know, all of a sudden, music industry starts running out of money. So they do this clever thing where they enable the, the college radio stations to be test markets so that they you know, can save money and be more economical. So that's why I say that there's a distinct demarcation because the songs all of a sudden get shorter. 45s come back and, you know, everybody's putting stuff out on 45s and people are buying 45s. And, you know, the dress code is totally different. It goes from long hair and styled hair to short hair or spiky hair and everybody's wearing skinny ties and, you know, getting their, their wardrobe from, uh, you know, the Goodwill, uh, you know, free boxes and stuff like that. Yeah, so so we're we're going through uh let me see that time. And um but but the 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 corporate rock people ha- have another problem. And what that problem is is that they don't they still don't have the money. They can vet, you know, good bands, bands that kids want to hear through college radio, but they still don't have the money to make mega acts like they used to. So I think this was around 1983. What happens is uh, somebody comes up with this great idea to say, hey, why don't we recycle the last iteration of rock and roll? And we will uh, come up with a term for it. And we could sell the same records because we don't have to advertise because we've already, you know, when things were good and we had advertising money, we could create these mega bands. It's not going to take too much to keep them going. So, you know, and some of those bands, you know, weren't too old and they still wanted to tour. So um, they came up with a term for it. And the term they came up for recycling this stuff was called classic rock. Okay. And classic rock, that was the beginning of the end for um, any 80s upstart bands that wanted to get, you know, a proper corporate record deal and you know do their thing so this is what enabled a very robust underground because what happens is in the 1980s is they realize if they want profits to keep coming in that you know they they're going to have to do this classic rock thing and it's easy and it's profitable so they're going to stick with it and all the commercial radio stations are just going to keep playing the same thing and it's funny how they're still playing the same thing today you drive down the street and listen to the commercial rock radio station and the music is not even from this decade it's not even from this century you know it's from another century and they're still playing so they didn't take too many they didn't pluck too much new blood from the from the college radio stations because they just didn't have the budgets for it to do it and that's why you'll notice that all through the 80s you know there, there's hardly any you know good sounding bands you know they're all this like it's like men at work and huey and, and uh, madonna and and uh, Phil Collins and stuff like that. I mean, you know, the, the the quality of of corporate rock during the 1980s is, is horrible. So we had to create independent. And luckily that there was this college radio f- f- network and facility that we could work. And you see that the corporate labels didn't care if uh, about about us touring. You know, they they didn't they didn't care. They, they wanted independent bands to be you know putting their stuff on the radio because they were listening to that those two radio stations especially and they were um you know making judgment calls based on what they heard and what was popular on those radio stations but um 
they didn't care if we had uh, a mechanism to tour. They didn't give a shit about that, but we gave a shit about that as independent bands. And that's why we were motivated to build the, the, uh, the touring network of uh, independent rock of, you know, figuring out how to, how to do this and how to you know, make it work. So um, that's a little piece. And so that's why also there wasn't that many places to play. And you could play, you know, D.C., you know, maybe Philly, uh, uh, you know, Hoboken, North Jersey. And, and you could play, you know, a couple of places around New York City, like you could play Brooklyn, you could play Manhattan, Boston, Boston area, maybe Rhode Island or something. And, and that was it. I mean, you, you didn't have a lot of places for bands to play. And, and in, the, in the West Coast, West Coast was kind of was kind of good because, you know, it's all it's all right in a line. You know, it, it's it's a lot of driving for sure. And it's not as convenient because the, the distance between uh, Washington, D.C. and Boston is not nearly as far as San Diego to Vancouver. Right. So and, and then there's this, you know, patch in the West. You know, you could do Phoenix, and Tucson, you could do El Paso and uh, Austin and. Maybe San Antonio, uh, Houston, and Dallas, and maybe go as far as Baton Rouge, coming from the west west side. And, and then it's you know, but the East Coast is just this, this little strip between D.C. and Boston, and there, there's nothing in the Southeast. There was no clubs in Miami or any of that. And uh, and then there was there was something around the Chicago, around the Great Lakes area that was kind of a loop there if you wanted to do that. But other than that, it was, you know, you found really, it was really hard to find a place to play because what people don't understand is, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, Decline in Western Civilization, uh, the first one, where there's yeah. a scene, there's a scene in this movie where the guy goes, hey, I have good news for the world. There is no, this movie was made in 1980, okay? And most of the bands are talking about were flourishing around LA in the late 70s. And, and, and he goes, I have good news for the world. There is no such thing as new wave. New wave is what you said you were into when you were really into punk, but you didn't want to tell your friends that at the party because then they'd kick you out of the party and stop giving you cocaine. And and that's, you know, that little joke there is 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 very telling of uh society because punk and new wave in the late 70s and early 80s was like, you know, you didn't tell your family that you were into this kind of music because they kind of look at you funny. And a lot of your friends were still into, you know. Prague rock and corporate rock and and they they didn't get it either so it, it was kind of good in a way because it was like this community of, of people you know who got it you you got it. but but everybody a lot of people were uh you know very very cagey about letting people know that they liked this music it was kind of shameful in a way for some reason so because of that you know it wasn't popular and because it wasn't popular there wasn't a lot of clubs playing so yeah it's uh it, it was it was rough going in the 80s really rough and then in the 90s you know all of a sudden it, it's like they couldn't recycle the dinosaurs anymore and uh you know they they had to they had to relent and start bringing in new blood and start forking out some money to advertise these bands and make them big bands and that was what they called grunge somebody came up with it, it was really just a continuation of what we started in the 80s at the post-punk thing and uh so yeah you got that grunge thing and and the funny thing about the 90s was that uh, and i'm not taking anything away from these bands um and i want to say and i'll come back to it in a minute but you know in the 90s a lot of those bands because those bands were 
who the 90s were honest about telling who their influences were from the 1980s. And uh, they didn't make any secret of it. But because, you know, the corporate rock people didn't have any, uh, you know, they don't own any of the publishing of, of any of the independent artists and they're not on their roster, they don't give a fuck about the independent artists. So they really didn't go into it too much. But, you know, if you listen closely, all you had your, you know, your grunge thing. And then you had your neo-hardcore punk thing. Uh, and then you had, you know, just other sorts of art bands uh, in the 90s. And all these guys, you know, would say, yeah, we listened to, you know, all these indie bands in the 80s. And that's where we, you know, kind of got our our beginning ideas from. And uh, the, the thing that makes your book interesting is because, you know, you zero in, at least in the 1980s, you zero in on that that time in history that's like this black box and that's why people are interested in it now i think because you know there's all these references in the 90s that the 90s bands said but there are these threads that lead back to this black box and people are curious because it's like well, well hold on what do these bands sound like you know what you know what of these bands We're like is, is there any place that we can learn more about them because you know mtv and vh1 sure as hell aren't going to be mentioning them or anything so you're not going to see them on you know cable tv or you know youtube or something and well, uh, everything's on everything's on youtube but yeah I everything's know. yeah right I, yeah i should <laughs> say you go, I, you I, I correct myself yes <laughs> yeah. you're right everything is on everything is on youtube but what i meant by that was it's you're not gonna, gonna you're not gonna yeah. see any of the corporate rock what's left of the corporate rock entity uh talking about those bands a thing that needs to die Practice room LA Here in Manchester, USA like I always think back to that Secret Chief song, you know, rock and roll is the thing that needs to die. <laughs> yeah. What I think they're talking about in that song is, uh, is, is, is not rock and roll music, but the rock and roll music industry is the thing that needs to die. And and I can you know see that that sentiment you know because the the business of rock and roll had become so rotten by that time it had it had morphed into this this weird animal that was uh, you know something very different than it originally started out from and uh, that's a that's a whole other discussion in and of itself but uh, so yeah I would say the fourth and final iteration of rock and roll starts in 1988 which is when i like i say when i you know happened on this idea and, and I, I would call that the recycled recycled iteration because everything in the fourth iteration of rock and roll was was kind of a a, a, a recycling of the previous three eras but all mixed together and happening simultaneously and uh and maybe a couple of things that were new you know you, you would see you know, people dressing like the 50s or dressing like hippies or dressing like punks or, you know, any, you know, whereas before there was uh, kind of very distinct uniform changes. You know, the hippies had a very distinct uniform change than the than the 50s crowd and the, the, the punk rockers. They had a very distinct uniform change from the from the hippies. And uh, but but in this final iteration, all of a sudden. You, you would find people dressing in, in, a, in a mix of those 
of styles on the same person. And the music was a mix of all styles, not just on the same album, but sometimes, you know, like Mr. Bungle in the same song. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and which is, you know, which is awesome. But, you know, so, so there was some new stuff, new ground being broken in, in that era for sure. But there was a lot of recycling going on. We don't want your apathy. No fucking government gets down on me. Can you spare any change? Can you spare any change? Anti-Reagan and stuff, babe. Yeah. What other thing I just want to say? Oh, you know what I never talked about was uh, 1993 recording with uh, Trey Spruance and uh, and and, Dan and Danny Heifetz and and Adam Ellis doing the, uh, you know, when we did the Infrisco single that that Greg put out on his label, the Amarillo Records. Yeah, and that was that was a really great session. We we did uh, five songs in that session. And Trey Trey, I I, I never remember the, the recording session. Trey before we went in to record this one take, he goes, "All right, you guys, this next take, let's be triply sarcastic." <laughs> I was like, I knew what he meant by that. I didn't have to ask him. I mean, triply sarcastic is like, let me give you an example. It's like when a politician. Uh, thinks he's clever by pretending to act stupid, but hold it, he really is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's like that kind of thing. And, and that kind of set the tone for the whole session. And uh, yeah, I, I think we captured Tripoli sarcastic on that on that on those recordings. The 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 two came out of the Frisco single, uh in Frisco and uh what was the other thing exactly the, the square head? Right. Yeah. Square. yeah. And Frisco and Squarehead, and then the other three tunes uh, ended up on the Popo Pies anthology. The only Popo Pies tangible product that you can buy in, in CD form now is uh, is this Popo Pies uh, YDP Deluxe reissue, and it came out the. It's like a it's put out by Liberation Hall Records, which is kind of like a spinoff of Rhino, and and uh, you know they're good guys so far. We you know so far as good we've we've. Uh, you know the record came out. I think it, I think last year, and uh, there's it's it's the six original tracks and seven bonus tracks. It, you you can buy that through I don't know Walmart, Target. You can... <laughs> well, it's a big seller at Wal. I think yeah. I, I, I think I saw it at the uh, checkout aisle uh, right next to the. It's uh, in the impulse buy rack. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> but yeah, you can definitely get that through mail order if you know, mail it to you. One of the things is previously unreleased. It's by uh, Six Minute Stream of Consciousness rock opera, Lenny in Wonderland, and uh, which which there was a video of. I better put it up on YouTube. Me and Jake, uh, Jake was the engineer that, uh, and and we put that together. And uh, so it's there's we made a little video of it and stuff, and, and it's kind of fun to watch. It, it's a video of the Tenderloin, and it's a six minute Stream of Consciousness rock opera about somebody who gets dosed with some lsd and his green tea and he and he's a tender he lives in the tenderloin so all the all the shots are my old neighborhood uh in the tenderloin where i used to live i where i lived for 20 years uh 20 years of, or i had 18 years of rent control in this one place so yeah i was i was doing good i could save some money <laughs> and finally move the fuck out of that place and, and get to you know i love living in reno it's great i'm, I'm having a ball here and uh it's really quiet. It's really, you know, 
It's really mellow and you've got some nice scenery. You know, I live in the foothills. Walking up and down the foothills. And it's it's really nice to look at. For more on the Popo Pies, you can go to popopies.com or to the show notes for this episode, which you can find at whocaresanyway.online. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, and ten represents the world vision album.